standard issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops in which I'm going to be talking to the actor and writer Sarah Soleimani. Sarah has adapted Joe Bloom's novel Ridley Road into a four-part drama for the BBC, also called Ridley Road, which starts tonight. That's if you're listening to this on the day of release. Obviously, I've seen two episodes. It's very good. I chatted to Sarah about the ups and downs of adapting somebody else's work, the parallels she sees between the 1960s and today, the conversation around anti-Semitism and, well, because I had her, Psychoville. We've got loads more great interviews planned in the coming months. So if you want to make sure you don't miss out, press subscribe wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. Until next week. Can I start by asking, what are the upsides and what are the downsides of adapting somebody else's work? Ooh, good question. Well, the upside is you're immediately completely drawn by a story. So the show is set around Ridley Road, which is a place in East London that you used to have a very predominant Jewish community. There's still a Jewish community in Stamford Hill, but it's now an incredible melting pot of different minority groups. There was a fascist movement, a fascist revival of Nazis that used to march up and down Ridley Road and they used to drink in the Ridley Arms, which is a local pub. And there was this movement of working men and women, Jewish men and women, who organised to become the 62 group to fight these Nazis out of Ridley Road. And I knew that there was this fascist presence in this area because my father grew up in the area. My grandmother shopped on Ridley Road. Both my grandmas, actually, on my Jewish Persian side and on my English side, shopped in Ridley Road. So I read this book and I just didn't really understand the extent of this presence and the extent of this threat and how much these Jewish men and women organized and fought and were active and infiltrated and what they sacrificed these weren't people with trust funds or you know family money these were working people who were holding jobs and supporting families and still found time to organize and do this work so the book gave me this portal into this world normally when you adapt a book the downside is that there's tension between you and the novelist on where you want to go because the show kind of takes off where the book leaves off. And I take Vivian and I do a lot of invention on this character on where she goes and what she does and what she gets up to. And I can honestly say that Joe Bloom was incredibly trusting and incredibly generous in handing over this world and this story to me. And it was with that spirit that I handed it over to Lisa Mulcahy who directed it. And it was a female team. Nicola Schindler um, and Bet San were the producers, female director, female novelist, female screenwriter, female lead. And the normal downside of adapting a book is there's some sort of possession and ownership. But with us, we were simply the vessels through which this important story passed. And so we didn't have the downside of, of ownership and control. And we let the story be despite many, many obstacles. Talking of many obstacles, I'm guessing, given the last 18 months that we've had, that there were points that you thought maybe that this might not happen. Yes. How do you carry on when you're not entirely sure whether this thing will ever come to fruition? Another great question. Well, the whole world was thrown into chaos with COVID. 
And what was particularly painful was that my COVID experience was compounded by living in America under Donald Trump's leadership. Mm. So it was a very frightening time to be alive for everyone. But we had this show and we had this this insane drive and commitment to finishing it because we down tools they were waiting to start up again and we started up again and then we had to shut down twice and we lost all the money that you have in a production that is budgeted suddenly there were costs about covid and quarantining and extras and we have crowd scenes and you've got to sort of deal with that but my only my north star was that this story has to be told and i can write my way out of any scenario i mean it was literally like there was distancing in some scenes which hopefully aren't too obvious but i would write my way out this scene can't have 18 people it can have two so what's the scene this scene can't be in a moving car it has to be stationary what's the scene about so the screenwriter in me i just took responsibility to write my way out of every single obstacle Mm. and that was my weapon and that was my tool and that's all i had to use obviously this is fictional characters but based within a true story and I have to say within about the first 20 seconds of this in fact it's when a date appears on the screen it does cause a real (gasps) because it is horrifically shocking that that is what parts of the UK looked like in the 1960s now there is an argument you know that there are things that happen in this country now that could lead people to go (gasps) this country and the country that you are living in as well. How difficult was it to stop what's happening now bleeding into it? Or were you using what's happening now as a jumping off point? I I have to say, your your questions are just so brilliant. Thank you. The tragic irony of my show taking so long to make, because it was, you know, it was a good six, seven years of reading it to screen. The tragic irony was that every year that passed, it got more and more relevant and more and more urgent. Mm -hmm. And when you study fascism or fascist thought, and especially when you're a screenwriter and you have to get into the psyche of why someone seemingly sane and good natured would come to some very problematic conclusions and decisions, you understand that fascism has a changing face. No one sets out to be the monster of history, everyone sets out to right a wrong. And so my task was not to park, you know, what was happening now with then, but to tell a universal story about why in an increasingly complex and confusing and overwhelming world, and I was reading a scientific journal that said what's happening in our culture right now in this moment is is the equivalent of the Big Bang in terms of acceleration, Mm. fast-paced, you know, gender, race, politics, power, trauma, pairing, everything is just moving and we don't know where to locate ourselves. So when someone comes along with a reductive ideology, we are this and they are that and that is why you are feeling such, such pain. When someone explains your pain to you, you go with them. So it doesn't matter if it's 1962. It doesn't matter if it's 2001 Taliban Afghanistan. It doesn't matter if it's 2016 America. It's the same conclusion, how good people can be convinced of bad ideas. We are the same. We're one. We are into beings. And this show is 
taking the past and hopefully holding up a mirror to modern day Britain. Anti-Semitism, which is such a hot button topic and really, really difficult, unpleasant row that's been going on in the UK about it. I mean, it is a disease, seemingly and quite depressingly, without a cure. But it also (laughs) seems to be one of the more hidden forms of racism. How productive do you think the conversation about anti-Semitism is at the moment? I don't think it's a very sophisticated conversation. I think the Jewish minority, which are only 260,000 in the United Kingdom, overall it's sort of like 0.5% of the global population. The comedian Sarah Silverman, I saw her uh, a comedy show the other day and she was joking that if you round down at zero. Mm. So, so if you think about actually just the numbers and, and how much is laid, you know, is laid at the, at the Jewish fault. And there's a line in my show, which was taken by the rabbi Leslie Harman, who was involved in the 62 group and he liberated Belson. And he said, why in the turmoil of the world are the Jews the tinder for its fires? And I think the Jewish minority in, in, in an age of identity politics, the Jewish minority are very rarely allowed the space to define their lived experience of racism on their terms. And that is often because of the state of Israel and the feeling and emotions that the state of Israel and its complexity triggers in people. But to understand the state of Israel is to understand how the nation state is formed and works, which takes time. Mm. And you have to read, you have to understand. And you have to understand history and you have to understand how the nation state is established and it's complexities and its problems and its security and its protection and you have to understand the nature of the Palestinian struggle so all these issues are lumped together with a basic day-to-day understanding in the United Kingdom of the Jewish experience very few people know that most synagogues and most yeshivas most Jewish schools will have security on their doors and have armed security on their doors because of death threats very few people know that there are there'll, there'll be resistance to put Hebrew lettering on the outside of buildings, institutions, because of the threat of violence. Very few people know that the Hasidic community, the religious Jewish communities who wear these smart clothes and hats, are not of wealth. They actually are living often in, in, in near poverty because of their dedication to the scripture. So already these, these misconceptions mm. are forming alongside the idea that Jewish people are rich, that Jewish people control things. So it's a very complex issue. And it's one that politicians, you know, should they choose to enter that space, have to be as careful and as sensitive and as informed as they would when they enter any other minority Mm. space that can cause pain. I think that thing you say about history, one of the things that I think is that you do so well in Ridley Road is to demonstrate how close the 1930s and 40s were to the characters in the 1960s. I think we tend to have an idea where we look back and we say it was a long time ago. Well, not when there are people that still remember it, that still either remember the experiences. Now we're getting to the tail end of people who will who remember it, but whose parents have remembered it and told them, or who lost people. And I think it's really important to, to tie us to history and say this isn't something that happened a long time ago. It's it's still really, really recent and still really, really fresh. Yes, exactly. It's still recent 
and our understanding of the benefit of hindsight is that we look back on this period of history in the Second World War and our victory in Churchill and go, okay, we know they were wrong and we know we were right. And that's our legacy. But actually, if you inquire into the attitudes of the time, Hitler was a hero. I mean, throughout the establishment in Europe, in Western Europe, he was a hero. He was a sex icon. People fancied him. You know, he was impressive. He was organized. He was bringing Europe out of the shadows of war. He had the respect of, of the establishment, of the monarchy, of the aristocracy. This was embraced. Oswald Mosley was also a serious politician. And he had a plan, a fascist plan for dismantling democracy and for installing a fascist state. He said that Westminster no longer functioned and that the two-party system was over. And so in my show, every line that comes out of a Nazi character's mouth is not sort of some monstrous zombie-like death wish. Mm. It's a very reasoned and very convincing argument. And I made a, a, a rule to myself that everything that they said you could hear now and think that that was a reasonable argument, because that's that's the reality. No one's ever in a sort of monstrous zombie situation. And no, these are good people convinced of bad ideas. Mm. It was called the Jewish war long into the 60s. It was a war that we shouldn't have got involved in. The extent of the Holocaust wasn't actually really the six million number. I don't know the exact date, but it wasn't floating around in 1962. So even conceptually, our idea of history and being on the right side of it changes over time and that's why we have to be mindful about where we locate ourselves and the views that we have in the current moment that we mm. find ourselves in. I mean it wasn't until the trial of Eichmann that anybody even really talked about their experiences of what had happened to them during the war. Jewish people I mean talked about their experiences during the war. Well that's why the work of Gabor Mate is very interesting he's a child of Holocaust survivors and he writes a lot about childhood trauma um, and addiction, hereditary pain you know, hereditary trauma. And, and I mean, as a culture, we're, we're just starting the conversation. I mean, shame wasn't even really a word that I used growing up. You know, it was, it's, that seems to be a new thing that we're embracing and we're dealing with. And I know I personally make confronting some of the things that I've had shame and trauma about. So, yeah, I mean, that whole war generation, they were, they were in just survival mode. Mm. Just get out of this alive. And that's, that's what the 62 group had. And that's, I guess that was just the, the, the beat of the drum they were marching to. And ours is very different. Ours isn't to get out alive. Ours is, is about, I'd say, more, more towards healing. Sorry, there's a plane going over my, uh, my shed. I'm talking to you from a shed. <laughs> God, that's um, a nice shed. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's a plush shed. Yeah, it's definitely <laughs> a plush shed. to ask you about something that you have said in the past and something that I spoke to uh, Georgia Pritchett or we we spoke to Georgia Pritchett about recently which is about women in writers rooms in television and while I would say it's quite easy for me as you know as a viewer of television and I've reviewed television for a long time to look and say it clearly is getting better just this week we'll be able to watch stuff on the telly by you by Sophie Willen by Daisy Haggard, loads of really great stuff. And Michaela Cole just literally won an Emmy yesterday for writing one of the best things that's been on telly in years. 
but I know that both you and Georgia have reported that actually in the UK it's not particularly getting better and that actually American writers' rooms are way, way different with women than they are over here. And I wonder if you could sort of fill in some feelings around that statement I just made. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, can we just bow down to the greatness of George Pritchard? I think she's just absolutely brilliant. And her experience is different to mine. And she's been in a lot more writers' rooms than me. And she's made a, a lot more incredible shows than I have. Her journey just speaks for itself. The shows that she's contributed on, that she's written, that she's been nominated and won awards for, and yet still hasn't ever been given her own show or her first show. You know, just, just that alone should be evidence enough that something's awry. Here's the thing. You see, Hollywood is not some, you know, golden utopia where women and men are treated equally. Let's just be honest. Wherever you are... Men are given more money and more power to do things with. That's just that's just the way it is. But because the British market is so small in comparison and there's only four or five channels, once you've met the four or five commissioners, and they're not all men, but, you know, they tend to be. And when you realise that they're never going to make your work, you're kind of, you know, you're out in the market. Mm. So, so you come to America. It's still sexist here women are still ripped off women's stories are still stolen women still aren't paid enough but the market is just bigger so that if you have the goods and you show up you have a better chance of getting the work made but the difference with the american system is economics matters they know who's controlling the remotes they know about advertising and in the uk even if you demonstrate that 52% of your audience are women Mm. and therefore should be women skewed. You still are met with resistance. So if the economics don't even speak to you, then you know it is a gender bias, which needs a different kind of campaigning. And the the, the only advantage of a hyper-capitalist culture in Hollywood is that you make the economic argument and you can kind of get what you, you can make your art. Yeah. And we don't have that in the UK and that's got to change for, for, for all our sakes. Well, it has got to change because I think the reason that it looks like it's getting better is because the the women that are breaking through and are getting their series are doing great stuff, like genuinely really great stuff. Oh, yeah. So it kind of skews. In many ways, it makes it look like women are perhaps more plentiful than they are because they're the stuff, that's the stuff that's winning awards, that's the stuff that's getting coverage. Yeah, it's... It's a different league. It's a, I mean, look at Ashling B. Yeah. I mean, she, her work is a, just a different league in terms of story structure, in terms of comedy, in terms of performance. It just shows you how starved the culture is of these voices. The fact that we... I mean, look at Phoebe Waller-Bridge's success. It's like the culture has been so starved of authentic female experience that when we do get it in its authentic form and it hasn't been kind of distorted and misshaped by the development process it envelopes you in this warm balm because you feel seen and heard so it's it's a good time to be a female creator but it can't be a moment it has to lead to systemic change and that means commissioners addressing their gender bias which even women female commissioners have admitted deborah francis wright wrote a fantastic piece in the guardian 
that a female commissioner admitted that she had a gender bias and that's why her numbers on commissioning women were so poor now when you're dealing with that yeah i mean you know it's it's a it's a hard it's a hard nut to crack now i have time for one more question for you and i would absolutely kick myself if the question that i didn't ask you wasn't about psychoville which, oh, <laughs> which has to be yes. some of the weirdest and most wonderful television and then nine years later you reappear as emily again <laughs> in inside number nine how did you get through those scenes without just just oh. folding in half laughing okay this is officially the best interview i've ever had <laughs> because no one talks about psychophil and i have to tell you that in my house i have no like memorabilia or pictures of anything of my work or anything in my shed i've got a couple of my awards oh my bitch just to let you know that <laughs> but but in my house the only picture i have is of me as emily with steve pemberton and it's in my bathroom and only the comedy connoisseurs know that that is a is a is a, is a photograph from psychoville and that's the only thing in my house that's about my career I wasn't known at all. I think I was filming the first season of Him and Her. And I'd seen Psychoville and was obsessed with it. And this part came up and I was like, I'm going to have to go in in character. I, I wasn't getting work. And so I would go in in character. I went in as Becky from Him and Her. And then I went in as Emily. I had these NHS glasses because I before I had um, my eyes lasered. So I was very, very short sighted. So I had these big Coke bottle glasses and uh, I wore my dowdy outfit and I went in and I went, hi, hi, I'm Sarah, hi. And, I, and I, was, I was Emily. And then I just loved those boys so much. They're, the, they're just collaborative and brilliant and funny. And, 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 we, and we did Psychoville and then they invited me back for Inside Number 9. And I flew in just for two days shoot and flew back, back again because I just, I just I adore that show. And it's just so my sweet spot of comedy. It's glorious. It is absolutely glorious. When when the Inside Number Nine aired, I was out and I got messages from people saying to me, just go home and watch Inside Number Nine before somebody spoils it for you. And I was like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And there you all were. It was amazing. Oh, it has a very special place in my heart, that show. And, and Reese and Steve won a BAFTA for Inside Number Nine. Um, and I think they texted me saying, I think it was our episode. So... Um, I was absolutely thrilled for them and to be a part of such incredible television and comedy. Well, I have my fingers crossed that in nine years' time you will pop up again as Emily somewhere (laughs) on my my television screen somewhere. Oh, thank you so much. Sarah, this has been brilliant. Thanks ever so much for your time. Everyone should watch Ridley Road. Thank you so much for having me. Standard issue for all women.